I was reading um, the words of Gunnery Sergeant Leland Stevens today as um, he was reflecting on Memorial Day and what Memorial Day means to him. He's a Marine and uh, served for 15 years. And he writes this, as Marines, we train the way we train because we never want to be the guy or the girl that has to put on the dress blue uniform and knock on a door to tell a family they've lost a member. The value is placed on the Marine to your right and your left, knowing that you have to trust them to do their job and they have to trust you to do your job. And he's talking about readiness and being alert and and taking care of each other. As Christians, he writes, our actions, they don't just cost a life. We're talking about an eternal soul here. At the end of the day, when that life is lost, it can't be rewon. As marine Christians, it's our job to try to be an influence, to lead others to a relationship with Christ, so that regardless of what happens on the battlefield, the eternity is secured. I think that one thing that I've noticed in coming out of the Marine Corps, he writes, is that there's less of a sense of urgency when it comes to sharing your faith outside of the military. In the military, we realize at any moment, at any time, during any training exercise or during any wartime event, lives that never made a decision or never heard the name Jesus can be lost. As Christians outside of the military, I've noticed that maybe there's less of a sense of urgency because the danger doesn't seem as real within America as it does when you're deployed overseas. He goes on to write a little bit of of why Memorial Day means so much to him and, and challenging us to take it seriously. But I thought that was a good illustration and, and, and he put into words very well what it meant to be ready, at, ready for action in light of the urgency. Ready for action in light of anything can happen. And when we think of our Christianity and when we look at our text today, Jesus is going to use that argument to tell us to be ready and watchful and waiting because at any time, Christ can come back, and at any time, our life here on earth can be over. So how do we live in light of that? How do we live in light of that Jesus could come back this afternoon? He could come back tonight. How do we live in light of any of our lives could end today, on the way home, in a car accident? How do we live as believers with that sense of life is temporary, but the eternal is eternal? And that's what Jesus wants to, to drive into our hearts. You know, if, if I had to think of a humorous illustration, I think of women's retreat. And I've shared this before, but even this last women's retreat, I probably heard half a dozen of you men saying, I've got to get home. I've got to get home before my wife gets home. We've got to clean the house and we have to do the dishes and we have to actually make, the kid, make sure the kids are dressed and beds are made, you know, all this stuff. There's this sense of mom's coming home and so we want to be ready. We want to be doing the things or have done the things that need to be done. And I, man, I commend you for that. That's better than saying, ah, leave the house a mess. Make the house great for her when she comes home. But we want to be ready. And so today as we we dig into Luke chapter 12, we're going to start at verse 35. We're going to take a big chunk. And all of the sections have to do with being ready of of some form. And if you remember last week, Pastor Andrew did a wonderful job of, of talking about stuff and money and worries and how those are the things that God wants us to be open handed with our stuff and to give our worry to him because he wants to get our eyes off of the temporal, off of the, the worldly, and onto the, the permanent, the eternal. What really matters? And so this is sort of the second half of that section where Jesus now is going to talk about what really matters. He's talked about 
don't worry about your, your money and your stuff and use that for the kingdom. But now he's going to come to, to the bigger picture and say the reason for that is life is temporary, but, but time is short. And eternity with God is what matters. And so he's challenging us to live light, life in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. To not just steward our stuff, but to steward our lives, to steward our activities. See, all those things, all the earthly things can distract us from living for God. They can distract us from God's purposes. But now we'll be exhorted to be ready and watchful and waiting. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there's a black one under one of the seats right around you on the racks. Take that, open it up. And if you don't have one at home, please take that home as our gift to you so you have God's beautiful word and message to us. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. And we'll move through a whole number of teachings that that Luke here puts together and Jesus puts together. And the first is that a disciple should be ready, waiting, and watching for the Lord's return. All of these, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's on his way to the cross, and he's teaching deeper and deeper what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow him. And in this, he he comes back after talking about the stuff of this world and says, be ready, waiting, and watching for the Lord's return. And we're going to break that out into several sections, but let's read the first couple verses. Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And, and it's this call, this urgency that's it's active. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to find him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those whose servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. We'll just stop there for now and take that first section. Because when we talk about being ready and waiting and watching, what does that mean? What does that look like? Is it like, oh, I hope Jesus returns soon? Or does it involve more? And so we've broken out some of the things that it involves. The first is we're to be actively serving God when He comes. We're to be actively serving God when He comes. And Jesus, this is the first of three different illustrations that Jesus uses about His coming. And and if you look at the, the wording there, stay dressed for action. Some of your translations might say to, to gird your loins. And, and we've talked about this before, but in, their, um, in their, their robes, it's sort of hard to run in robes. It's hard to work in robes. And so they would take their robes and they would pull them up and they would tuck them into the, the belt. And that was girding your loins or, or being dressed for action. And so the idea is, are you ready and able to be working for God? You need to work and move without impedance, without anything um, stopping that. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And again, the idea is to keep oil in the lamp and to keep maintaining it and to keep that burning. Again, it was a sign of readiness and watchfulness and vigilance. And Jesus here is saying, even with the delay, even when you're waiting for me to come back, as we're going to see, that's the context here, be ready, be watching. Be dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And what he's saying here is he's saying, stay busy doing what you're supposed to be doing. Don't let your guard down. But when I'm gone, when you're waiting for me, what does waiting look like? It's active. It's doing these things. Verse 36, And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. 
And we know that wedding feasts, uh, you know, we think our weddings are long. <laughs> no, a wedding feast for them might take a week, maybe two weeks sometimes. And the master would go away and you'd be part of these festivities and you never knew when he was going to come home. And so the, the, the picture that Jesus is saying is, how, do, how are we disciples? How do we live? Live like you don't know when Christ is coming back, but he is where you know he is, but it could be today, it could be tomorrow. So, so how do you want to, if you're a servant, how do you want your master to come home and find you? He's at this feast. He's gone. And it says, And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes back. And, it, and it's this, they're, they're on call, they're on duty, they're on point. And as soon as he comes back and knocks the door, they op- knocks on the door, they open it and they're ready because they've been doing what they are, are supposed to be doing. See, it's, it, this, these verses are about faithfulness and the wait. Faithfulness even now as we are waiting for Christ's return. We're to be on point. We're to be doing what God wants us to be doing. Think of the word awake down a little bit further um, where it says in, in 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And all of these things are about being alert and active in faithful service. This isn't passive waiting. I, it's so easy to accept Christ and I have my salvation and now I can just sort of kick back, go to church, sing some songs I like. And, and we can be very passive about, okay, when I, when I die, I'm going to be in heaven or when Jesus returns, I'm going to be in heaven. We're good. And that passivity is not allowed in Scripture because the idea is to be awake, dressed for action, keep our lamps burning. How do we wait well? By faithfully doing what God's called us to do. It's not rocket science. By doing what God wants us to do. I, I, I can remember when, when thinking of, of Saturdays, and I've shared this before, but my dad would often work on Saturdays and I had a list of tasks a list of things I was to do. And, and I can remember when I knew when he was coming home, I would perhaps wait on that list until right before he came home. Because, hey, I can get a bunch done, make it look like I was working, and play all morning. But when I didn't know when he was coming back, I sort of had to get to the list right away. Because I wanted dad to find me doing what he had asked me to do when he came home. Now, part of that is I knew there were consequences <laughs> if he did not find me doing what I was supposed to do when he, he got home. But I also wanted to please dad. And, and so that's the sense here of are we, are we on duty? Are we doing what God wants us to do while he's gone? If Christ comes back this afternoon, will he come back and find us about his business? Will he come back and find us doing what he would want us to do? This doesn't allow for any lapses in that. Second thing that we see here is waiting means to eagerly long for Christ's return. Eagerly long for Christ's return. And and I think of that in 36 and 37 there. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. They're waiting. They're anxious. It's like my kids this week, we... um, 
we went and saw Solo, and they knew we were going to see Solo, and they were waiting for me to get home, and they were excited, and they were like, okay, let's go, Dad. And there was this anticipation, this eager anticipation, that when Dad gets home, we're going to go do something cool. That's the kind of eager anticipation that we should have as we think of Christ's return. You know, I lived through the 70s and the 80s. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. And it was sort of fun when we, when we think of the rapture and Christ's return because everything was about that. I don't know if you, some of you remember like Late Great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey and Chuck Smith. And I had this whole thing of cassette tapes. If you're young and don't know what those are, we can explain that later. But we had cassette tapes, and I had Chuck Smith and Chuck Missler. Just everything was about this excitement that Christ might return. Now, I understand that pendulum can go too far, and we can have dates, and, and, and that's not what we're about. But, but now the pendulum, I think, has gone the other way, where we don't talk about Christ's return much. We don't get excited about it. Guys, Christ is going to come back any day. Amen? Let's try that again. Okay, wake up. The good servant should be awake. Christ is going to come back any day. Amen. That's right. We should be excited about it. We should be anticipating it, waiting at the door for when the master comes home. When he knocks, they open it right away, just like my kids. I, I, I barely touch the door. Boom. Because they're excited. They're anticipating it. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And he's going to go on to talk about that blessing. But there should be this eager, eager longing, this eager expectation and readiness for when Christ comes back. Are we excited about it? Are we excited that he might come back this week? The older I get, I have to confess, the more I'm like, oh, Lord, please come now. <laughs> um, when I was young, I had a lot of things I wanted to do. But, but now I'm like, okay, today would be good. Tomorrow, okay, a little less good, but today would be better, God. But that's okay to have that eager expectation, that hope. That's what we see in Scripture. In Titus 2.13, we read, waiting, waiting for the blessed hope. This is a good thing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the picture here, though, is when the Master comes home, the lamps are still on. The, the fire's lit. There's some snacks on the table, maybe PB&J for the master. I don't know what they had. And, and they open the door and they're like, come on in, we've been waiting for you. We're excited that you're here. That's what we want to pursue. How do we expect Christ to return? How do we long for that? And I think some of it is we, we have to really believe he's coming back. Sometimes we can get so caught up with our eyes on this world and the stuff of this world that we forget that Jesus actually is coming back. We should talk about it. We should anticipate it. You know, read Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and, and see what heaven's going to be like with the new heavens and the new earth and get excited about it. Expect it. The end of 37, though, is really interesting because it talks about Jesus' heart for those that are ready, for those that are watching for him. It says, truly I say to you, he, and it's speaking of Jesus there, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Now, Now get the picture here. Master's away at the wedding feast, right? And he comes home after a week or two and the servants are at the door saying, hey, we're glad you're here. The lamps are lit. Everything in the house is spotless. It's great. And Jesus comes in and he's like, oh, 
this, this pleases me. You know what? Wait just a minute. Sit here. And, and he tells his servants, come to the table. Come to the table. Sit around the table. Sit here. And, and then you know what I'm going to do? And he goes and dresses as a servant. And it's the same word that's used in 35, dress yourself for action. Um, he, he goes and dresses himself and he begins to serve the servants and brings out some wine, brings out some good food and says, let's just, let's just enjoy ourselves. That's the picture. This was unheard of. Masters didn't do that for servants. The reason you had servants was so you don't have to do this. But Jesus is illustrating how important being ready is and being on duty and, and being serving God when he comes back. That He's like, you want to see how, how important this is to me, how much it means to me? I will serve you. And he gives this picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb that we'll have when we meet Jesus in eternity. Where we are invited to this great feast and we are in communion with Jesus and with God the Father. And we just have this wonderful relationship and enjoyment. It's an amazing display of servanthood. It should bring to mind Jesus washing his disciples' feet, which is coming. It represents total acceptance by Jesus. Think about the encouragement of this. If, if you're sitting there and, and you're going through the persecution that the church is about to go through, and you read verses like this, it reminds you this isn't all there is. Oh, more is coming. And it is going to be amazing, the fellowship we have with Christ. The reward for storing up our treasures in heaven is this feast and this relationship and Christ's blessing and his pleasure. When I think of this, I, I, in the early church, the idea of Christ's coming was, was a great encouragement. They would often say the word Maranatha to each other. You guys heard of Maranatha? And again, you're going back to 70s worship music, I know. Um, but Maranatha means come Lord Jesus, or Jesus is coming, one of the two. And we, we find it actually, it, it's Greek, and it's at the end of 1 Corinthians, and that's one of the ending verses is come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And it was this idea of Jesus, hurry, come back, we can't wait. Which is why we did that song this morning. That's sort of modern day equivalent of what Maranatha meant. And as it was interesting, because early, early believers would use that word especially to encourage believers that were going through tough times. Someone's just going through persecution and difficulty, and another believer would say, Maranatha, Maranatha. And that was an encouragement because it meant Jesus is coming. This isn't all there is. Jesus is coming. And I know in a room this size that there are all kinds of, of stuff and all kinds of crud from this world, this fallen world, that you're dealing with. And my word to you this morning is Maranatha. Jesus is coming. And this isn't all there is. You just have to endure this for a time. But eternity will be with Christ. And it will be so, so much better. So we're to eagerly long for Christ's return. We read on in 38 through 40 and, and we see Jesus' encouragement. Don't let his delay lessen your readiness and excitement. Don't let his delay lessen your readiness and excitement. And that's easy to do. It's been 2,000 years. We're like, when's Christ coming back? But don't let that lessen our expectation and our hope. His sudden return could be at any time. In verse 38, if he comes, speaking of the master, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. And he uses the word awake again. But the second watch and the third watch... Um, 
really meant the dead of night. And, and there's all kinds of debate. Is this the Jewish watches? They had three and they split the night into three watches. Or the Roman watches, they split the night into four watches. Either way, this is like midnight to three. And, and this is when most people are asleep. And Jesus is saying, even when you think that there's a delay, even when you think you don't have to be ready, be ready. Be awake. Now, this isn't saying that you can't go to sleep tonight. It's not saying sleep well, be rested, take care of yourself. But spiritually, every day, are we saying it could be today? Jesus could come back today? Am I looking for him? Am I expecting it? Because it could be today. We could meet Jesus in other ways if our life ends today, but it could be today. Blessed are those servants in 39. But know this, and he goes to his second illustration. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. That makes sense, right? We, we probably, some of you don't post on Facebook when you're on vacation because it's like a giant sign that says, the house is empty. Come on in. Take what you need. And, and so we, we, we know this. We don't schedule a time for a burglar to come. That would be ridiculous. And so Jesus is using that. Uh, if, if the master had known when the thief was coming, he wouldn't have left his house to be broken into. But verse 40, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. And he's saying, be ready. Even if there's a delay, expect me. Expect me at any time. In 1 Thessalonians 5, We read, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We see that same imagery. Say it could happen at any time, a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to... You are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. It's any time, but we know that. And that's a doctrine that we call the imminence of Christ's return, that he can come back any time. And that should affect how we live. You know, this morning I woke up while it was still dark to our alarm beeping and one of the lights in a back bedroom on that's on the the other side of the house where all the kids are. And um, my heart was beating. And I was looking around for something heavy um, because that's, that's what you do, right? As dads, it's our job. I didn't run and get Alicia and say, it's your, your turn. Um, <laughs> I was looking for something heavy and I was going to protect the family. And all I had was an empty water bottle, which is like, okay, boing. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm sort of groggy and I'm getting up and checking it out. And, and it slowly dawned on me, there was no burglar this morning. It slowly dawned on me that there was a power outage. And our alarm starts to beep after a power outage. And apparently one of the lights in our back bedroom, our spare bedroom, goes on. But I'm expecting that that bedroom has a door to the outside, to the backyard, that we've had broken into before. We've had it kicked in. And I'm expecting going into that room, a person to be standing there. Because you don't know. It's that uncertainty that a thief might be in my house. And that kind of uncertainty. It's not that trepidation that we have about Christ's return, but that idea, it could be at any time. Am I ready? I wished I was more ready at that point with some sort of either firearm or something heavy, maybe a bat. Praise God, I didn't need it. But spiritually, are we ready for Christ's return? Are we doing what God wants us to do? 
Are we eagerly anticipating it? Can he say, well done, good and faithful servant, if he came this afternoon? That's the challenge here. There's an encouragement here. There's a challenge here of Christ coming back anytime. One author wrote, roll up your sleeves, turn the lights on, get ready. Jesus is coming soon. It's a great, great summary of this passage. Roll up your sleeves, turn the lights on, get ready. Jesus is coming soon. And so, so this whole first section, and we're going to spend most of our time on points one and two today and dive deep into those and then, then um, give summaries of the rest. But this is Jesus' encouragement to be ready. It's, it's how we should be while we're waiting. And the next section then, he gives some reasons why. He gives some accountability. And, and point number two is be ready because we will be held accountable for how well we waited. Be ready because we will be held accountable for how well we, rate, we waited. And this is Jesus saying, do this. But then he's going to say, this is what happens if you do, and this is what happens if you don't. And he's going to give some rewards and some consequences. Now, sometimes we shy away from rewards, like, oh, I'm humble. I don't want to think of any rewards. No, God says we get rewards for following him, for for being good stewards. And, And so that's a good motivation. God's reward, God's pleasure. Hey, that's a great motivation. Just as God's discipline should also be a motivation. And so we come to this next section about a steward and again, a master going away um, for a longer period of time. Again, he doesn't give how long because he's illustrating this gap we have between Jesus' ascension and his return, the gap we're living in. But in verse 41, he says, Peter said, and so Peter jumps in and he's, he's often the spokesperson. And this is a legitimate question. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And so Jesus has been talking about the responsibilities of being ready while he's gone, the master is going, and, and Peter just wants some clarification because there's all kinds of people around. Is this for the 12 or, or is this for everybody? Just, just so we know maybe how seriously to take it. I don't know. Um, but Jesus doesn't directly answer it, but he answers it with a story that's going to say, well, it's for you and for everybody in different degrees. And so here's the story in verse 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his fast master will set over his household to give him their portion of food at a proper time? And and the picture here is is of of a master of a large household, and he has employees or or servants. And usually some of those servants, they would set over the other servants or over the affairs of the house. In this case, this servant had the job of making sure everyone gets food. It's a good job. It's an important job and probably ties in to the disciples' role that is coming of feeding people spiritually. And he says, He gives a portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And so he gives the first example here, and Jesus is going to give four different types of responses The first one is the one that obeys and is ready. He's illustrating how to be ready. Be doing what God wants you to do while he's gone. Faithfully fulfilling what you're supposed to be doing. That's how we're ready for Christ's return. So he's making sure everyone gets fed. He's doing the little things and he's doing them well. He's serving. And so in verse 43 and 44, we get the result. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, and then the, the, the reward. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Cool, a promotion. 
And so he now becomes not just the steward or not just the servant over making sure food happens, but over the household, over everything in the household. Think Joseph with Potiphar, right? Joseph was the second of the the household under Potiphar. Potiphar gave him authority over everything. Jesus is saying, "If, if you're doing what you should be doing when I come back, you're going to be given more responsibility. You're going to be, be given more of a role in the kingdom of what you're doing for me. What an incredible opportunity, an incredible reward. Those that are faithful with a little will be entrusted with a lot. We're going to see that later with the parable of the ten minas. But again, waiting and watchfulness. It's more than an attitude. It's serving well. It's doing something. And so Jesus puts this up as the standard. This is what you should go for. But then he goes into some other possibilities. And in verse 45, we get the the, uh, story of the one who abuses the delay for his own advantage. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. And the, the picture here is someone that is abusing power, abusing authority, and, and ruling over with an iron fist those that are under him, beating the, the, the servants, male and female. And then you get that, that he's eating and drinking and getting drunk, so he's all about himself. He's misusing the master's resources. So he's misusing the master's staff. He's misusing the master's resources all for him, for his glory, for his sense of power, authority, control, for his sense of, of joy, of a sort, getting drunk, eating, drinking, and being merry. He's choosing evil. He's choosing to abuse what the master has given him to take care of. The information may be for us, the knowledge that God has given us, choosing to abuse that. But then we get the the consequence. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. Again, the idea he can come any time. And at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So I was thinking of asking for a volunteer. Now, this, this is actually really brutal imagery. It means to dismember. We, we can't water that down. Jesus is saying, if, if you are, are abusing the trust that I have given you when I come home, if, if you have chosen to do evil with that, the, the picture of what will happen to you, and it's not literal but figurative, is that of being cut in two or cut in pieces. And then it says, sent to, to those that are unfaithful. Put him with the unfaithful. And that's a word for those that are sinners that haven't accepted Christ, unbelievers. And so this is a reference to eternal judgment. They're looking at hell. And, and, and it may be that they looked like spiritual leaders, they talked like spiritual leaders, they, they sounded like believers, but in the end, their actions proved that they never were. Their actions proved the heart. And so there will be punishment. And, and we can't take this lightly. When we have heard the gospel, when we have had the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and convict us when we've seen the truth and we don't come to Christ. At that point, when, when He returns or when our life ends, the deciding portion is done. And now we're in the consequence portion. And if we don't choose Christ, we are choosing eternity in hell without Christ. 
See, when we don't think Jesus is coming back, life deteriorates. All kinds of things we can justify. All kinds of choices. Don't be part of those consequences. If you, if you haven't genuinely given your heart to Christ today, today's the day. Because today could be the last day. And, and, and I know when, when we think of, of evangelists and Billy Graham and others, that, oh yeah, today might be your last day. No, no, today might be your last day. They're, they're telling the truth. And so what we decide about following Christ will decide our eternal destiny. You know, when, we, when Matthew 24 is a parallel passage and helps us understand this, it says in, in, in very similar, but the result will be and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, false Christianity doesn't fool Christ. You can sit here and fool me probably pretty easily by saying all the right things and doing all the right things. But in the end, we will be judged by, is our heart turned to Christ? Is our heart faithful to Him? So we have two different approaches to waiting. The first servant was about what the, what, what the master asked him to do and faithfully executed his duties. He gets the promotion. He gets the blessing. The second chooses to ignore, chooses evil, and now has to, to endure the consequence. Now Jesus addresses two other servants in 47 and 48. And the, the, the next one is one who knows what he should do and doesn't do it. So it doesn't necessarily choose evil, but chooses apathy. Ah, I know the, servant wants me, or the master wants me to feed the other servants, but I'm not going to. For us, hey, I know God wants me to be sharing the gospel and discipling others. Ah, I'm just going to have a comfortable life. I'm just going to pursue you know, having all the stuff that I want maybe feeling good about myself. And in verse 47, we get that person. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, he will receive a severe beating. And and again, you have to take these figuratively of spiritual judgment. This is a picture of, of a believer that will be in heaven but will not be rewarded and will be held accountable for what they've done. And on that day, we'll have to answer to Christ actually for what they didn't do. They'll be held accountable for their lack of actions. Then in verse 48, you get the one who doesn't do what the master wants because he didn't know. And you get the, the idea of, of out of ignorance. But the one who did not know and did what, what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be, will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. And so here we get, and this is, this is a little uncomfortable for us to, to say, because, you know, what they didn't know. How can Jesus hold them accountable? No, a holy, righteous God will always judge sin. Always. I didn't know is not an excuse. In our home, we say, I didn't hear you is not an excuse. You have to learn to listen. You have to learn to hear mom and dad. And Jesus is saying, no, there still will be punishment. Now, there will be a gradation of punishment. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. But everyone will be held accountable for their choices and for their actions. Nobody gets off. Sin is always punished. And then Jesus at the end there goes on to, to answer Peter's question, I think, finally at the end. 
Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. And Jesus is saying, everyone's to be ready. Everyone's to be waiting. Everyone's to be doing what God wants them to do and eagerly anticipating the coming of the Savior. But you 12, I've given you more. I've given you more training. I've given you more responsibility. And so you'll be held to a higher standard. I think that's what the story is saying. We know that from James. Teachers will be held to a stricter judgment because what God has given them, the role he's given them, has responsibilities and judgment for that responsibility. You know, some of you are leaders in the church. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are going to go second hour today and teach. That is a serious responsibility that God will hold you accountable for. Now, I'm not trying to scare off teachers and boom, we have no more second hour teachers. I'm trying to say, let's do it with a heart that says, I know Christ can come back and I want to be found faithful. I want to be found doing what he wants me to do. You know, last week we voted in new officers, leaders in the church. That's a a sacred trust. That's a sacred responsibility to lead God's people. And we take it seriously. That's why the nominating committee and the elders, we go through the biblical requirements and evaluate those before putting anyone forward. But Jesus is saying, what have you been given? What responsibilities have you been given? I would also argue, what knowledge have you been given? We now have the Old and the New Testament. We have teaching that is unprecedented in human history available at our fingertips for God's Word. We can, at a click of a button, find any passage in almost any translation and 25 views of what it means. That's a responsibility God has given this church at this time to say, are we, are we using that for God's purposes? Are we the servant that is using our resources and being about what God wants us to do while he's gone? What have you been given? These two sections really make up Jesus' teaching of saying, I'm coming back and you need to be ready. You need to be living in light of that. Pastor Robert McShane said he he would go to other pastors who he'd ask people and just on the street or people he knew, he'd be, do you believe Jesus is coming back today? That's sort of a trick question. How do you answer that? Do you believe Jesus is coming back today? And if they said no, he'd say, then you better be ready for he's coming in an hour when you think not. He'd quote part of this passage. But what an interesting thing. He's trying to take both of these passages and saying, we're to be ready and waiting, and there's rewards and consequences if we're not. So do you think he's coming back today? Now, now again, he's not saying, oh, yeah, I predict he's coming back at 12.01 today. No, no, no. He's saying, do you think he might? Do you think he might? Be ready. We get into the the rest of the, the section, and Jesus is going to talk about other ways to be ready And point number three there is be ready for division as we love Jesus most. Be ready for division as we love Jesus most. The gospel demands a choice. It's a choice that may divide. Sides must must be taken. There's no middle ground. And we've talked about that over and over. And Jesus is going to keep upping the ante and saying that more and more and more. And in 49 it says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And he's saying here, the fire in 49 represents God's judgment. 
He says, I've come to actually judge sin. Now we know on the cross, He judges sin, He pays for sin, but He confronts people about their sin. And He's like, oh, I wish the cross was already here. I wish my purpose was already done. In 50, the same thing. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Again, referring to the cross. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. And He comes back to His purpose. And whenever you see, I came to, you know that you have a purpose statement. Jesus is making a significant statement about His ministry. And He's saying, I I came to replace the old kingdom with a, a new kingdom. Replace this earthly kingdom with My kingdom. And they are completely different. Sin will be judged, but it will also be paid for on the cross. And that is His purpose. To bring the judgment of fire on sin, but to take that judgment of fire, the wrath of God on the cross in our place. He goes on in 51, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For now, for from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, father against mother and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And Jesus is saying, the truth of who I am is going to divide. If you love me most, if you follow me most, there are going to be people that don't like it. If you are willing to stand up and say, all people are sinners and we can't have a righteousness on our own, we can never pay that price for that sin, but we need Jesus Christ, His death on the cross that paid the price for us. We need to give Him our life and so we give Him our heart and our love. If we stand for that, there will be division. Be ready for it. And in 51, Jesus said, do you think I've come to to give peace on earth? And my first thought is, well, Isaiah said you're the Prince of Peace. And the angel said, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. So, so yeah, I can see where they think that, but Jesus is, is, is really helping them understand what that means. He is the Prince of Peace, and He did come to bring peace. Peace with God. But He won't force people to have peace with God. He will reveal sin. He will reveal their need for Christ. He will die on the cross, giving us an ability to have peace with God. But that will also cause division. And so short-term, He will cause division. Long-term, He gives peace. And He is the Prince of Peace. And He brings peace on earth for all who believe. But for those that don't, it's the sawn in two and, and cast into darkness. See, the cross challenges us. What is our choice? What is the consequence of that choice? Even today, people know what that division looks like. If you think of Muslim families, when one comes to Christ, the rest of the family, if they are practicing um, Islam, will, will shun them, will kick them out of the family, or worse in some countries. In China, we heard of, of churches being burned down and destroyed recently. We, we know that in, in Chinese families, if one turns to Christ and the others don't, there's division and there's, there's um, ostracization, ostracization. Say that quickly. Even in Orthodox Jewish families, this can happen. See, we have it easy. When I accepted Christ, my parents rejoiced. I didn't have to worry about whether or not they'd never speak to me again. 
But in this world, we are going to divide. We are going to have people that don't like the message. And we have to be ready for that and be firm in our message. Jesus goes on in the next couple sections in, in point number four. Be ready by seeing the spiritual state of things and making sure we are right with Christ before he comes to deal with sin. Lot in that sentence. Be ready by seeing the spiritual state of things and making sure we are right with Christ before he comes to deal with sin. In verse 54, he also said to the crowds, and so he's continuing his teaching, and this is all about being ready and seeing what's happening and making sure you're right. He says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. And he's saying, you can figure out weather. In fact, you're, you're pretty good at figuring out weather. When it comes from the west, see, they know that that's coming over the Mediterranean Sea. It's pulling moisture up out of the sea, and it usually means rain. When wind's coming from the south, that's the Negev or the desert, the barren places. That's usually heat. Because this isn't rocket science. You've figured this out. And in fact, you're so interested in the weather. But then he says in 56, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. And he's saying, man, you're, you, you know these things. You, you can see the physical world, but you're missing the spiritual You're missing the rot and the decay. You're missing the sin. And and for them, you're missing that the Messiah is standing in front of you. And you're asking for a sign still. He says, you should know I'm the Messiah. You should recognize that God is at work here. He's dealing with sin. In the second half of that in verse 57, 59, says, okay, so how do you be ready? If, if we really see what's going on, he says, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And, and, and again, these things, we can miss some of these illustrations, But for them, if you weren't able to pay someone back, you went to debtor's prison. And in fact, that's what the officer in 58 is. He's the debtor prison officer. And if you don't pay someone back and you ruled that in court, off to to prison you go until you can pay that. So I often wondered, how do you pay that if you're... But that's a whole different discussion. And, And Jesus' point is, in light of that, if you know that's coming, don't you want to settle the debt early and not have that penalty? And his spiritual application is, you see the signs of the times. You see that the cross is coming, the Messiah is coming. For us, we see that Jesus is coming back, that life is only so long. Don't you want to be right with God before he comes with judgment? And the judge here is God. And he's saying, be right with me now. Now's your chance. And he's almost pleading with them. Come to me. Give your life to me. Repent. Because it says in 59, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Actually, it's a a coin that was about an eighth of a penny, the smallest coin they had. And he's saying every last debt of sin must be paid. If you do it on your own, you've got to do it on your own, and you'll never make it. But Jesus came to cover every sin. He came to cover every penny. He can pay that debt if we repent and turn to him. 
His argument is sort of, people will do anything to stay out of jail. Won't you do this to stay out of hell? To stay out of the judgment of God? And he's pleading with them to be ready spiritually for the coming of the judge. You know, if Christ does come back today, we will stand before the throne and we will be held accountable for our our, our actions and we will be asked to pay the wages of our sin, which is death, which is destruction. And if we've chosen, if we've chosen to take the sweet gift of Jesus that he gave us on the cross and repent and give our hearts to him and turn to him, then Jesus will say that debt's paid. Every penny, every eighth of a penny is paid. Every sin that you and I commit is paid. But if Jesus comes back today and we haven't made that choice and we stand there, we have no money to pay it. And the penalty is eternity away from Christ in hell. That's what Jesus is saying. And I can't water that down. He's saying, make your decision now. Time is short. Be ready. Repent. You never know when judgment is coming. And in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 13, he really continues the same thought. Point number five is being ready means real change and real fruit. Being ready means real change and real fruit. In chapter 13, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So some people ran up and said, Jesus, did you hear what Pilate did? Pilate was brutal. You know, sometimes we, we make him sort of a, a nice Roman in, in the crucifixion. He wasn't. He was brutal and he was despicable. In this case, some Galileans, probably guilty of, of insurrection or, or suspected insurrection, Pilate had killed while they were in the temple giving sacrifices. So their blood spread and mingled with the animals they were giving sacrifices to. This to a, to a Jew was just heinous. This was awful. And they're running up and maybe they're trying to distract Jesus because he's saying some pretty tough stuff about being ready and, and that there's no other way except Christ. And, and so they run up and tell him this. Maybe he's going to take, take um, the Jews' side. Maybe we can distract him. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless they repent, you will all likewise perish. And they're like, oh man, didn't change the subject. Still talking about us perishing. Now, now Jesus is tapping into the idea, the Jewish idea was that if something bad happened to you, so if, if, if Pilate killed you, or we're going to see if there's a, a catastrophe that's, that happens to you, if anything bad happens to you, that's because of sin in your life. And so it was sort of the, the first health and wealth gospel that if you, you know, were spiritual, everything good would happen to you. And, and Jesus is combating that because the idea is that, oh, if this happened to them, then they must have deserved it in some way. Otherwise, God wouldn't have let it happen to them. Remember later in John when Jesus, they come across the blind men and the disciples, remember what they ask? What sin did he commit? Or whose sin is he blind for? It's the same thought that, oh, sin causes these things. Now, in the the bigger picture of the fallen world, sin in the fallen world does, but not everything bad that happens to us is because of some specific sin in our life. And so Jesus is redirecting him back to say, no, actually... Unless everyone repents, you perish. We're all guilty of sin. And so then Jesus goes on and for, or, or what about those 18? And he's probably referring to another um, current event. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. 
Pool of Siloam is right where they think the eastern and the southern walls of the old city had come together. They're probably building a tower for protection. It fell and it killed a bunch of people. He says, what what about those 18? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. And he, he comes back to the heart issue. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so Jesus is coming back to repentance. And he's saying every individual needs to repent. Not just the bad people. Not just the people that have something bad happen to them. Every one of us has to repent. And so many of you have. And when we think of repent, this is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is a true turning and a true change of action. One author said, to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. It's a complete U-turn, a 180, a complete change. You say you're repentant, I'll see it in your actions. I'll see it in your change. If there's no change, you're not repentant. And so Jesus is saying, we need to repent. We need to renounce our sin and turn. And he explains what that means in 6 through 9 a little bit more. That means producing fruit. Producing fruit that is in line with our repentance. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his garden, vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. An interesting story. And the, the, the fig tree here is probably Israel, but it's, it's descriptive of a, a bigger quality of God. We see God's mercy here. You know, all this talk today, this has been one of those sermons like, oh, okay, dismembering and judgment and outer darkness and repentance. But how Jesus ends it is, I have mercy on you. I want you to turn to me. Yes, three years. They, they should have seen the Messiah. They should have seen the, the signs of what he's doing. They should have repented. But the vine dresser says, can we give another year? Can we give a little bit more time? And we see God's divine patience with our sin here. And I don't mean that to excuse sin, but without God's patience, we would have been dead our very first sin. The fact that any of us are alive is a testimony to God's divine patience and mercy, and desire for us to turn to Him. And this is a statement that says, you don't know when He's coming. You don't know when the end is, but you have a little more time to turn to me. Use that now. Don't waste that. It shows God's grace. It also shows God's expectation of fruit while we're waiting, which goes back to the very first section. Fruit while we're we're expecting His return. Time is short, but the debt has been paid and we need to make a decision. I end with with a challenge today that is from John Wesley, actually. He, He would talk to people and he would say, so what would be different in your life? What would be different in your life if you knew Christ was coming back tonight? Just sort of wrap it all up. What would you change today? Would you change your schedule today? Would you change your activities? Would you change your thought process today if you knew Jesus for sure was coming back tonight? Now, I'm not predicting. I'm not saying go sell your property. No, no. 
But if you knew for sure, what would change? And the challenge was, so why would it change? Because if there would be any change, if we thought he was coming back tonight, then we aren't living ready for his return. I'm like, ouch, ouch. See, if that question makes me want to change something, then I just need to change it. Because he could come back tonight. He could come back during Ultimate Frisbee today. So does that change how we play Ultimate Frisbee? He could come back before next Sunday. So does that change who I share the gospel with? It shouldn't if we're ready and on point and on task. Let me pray for you. Lord God, oh, may we be ready. And servants that are doing what you want us to do when you come back, that are eagerly looking forward to you coming back and are bearing the fruit of repentance. Lord, there's so much in this text today and and, um, we've flown through parts of it. But I pray that you'd help us to reread it and to be challenged to live like you're coming back today, to live like this is the last day we have, and to make every moment count. Lord, I pray that we'd be on fire for you, excited for you coming back, and making a difference in this dark world. In Jesus' name.